Hey, this is Howard Jacobson of the Plant Yourself podcast, and I am thrilled to be joined on the phone today by Sean Kane from Rehoboth, Massachusetts. Hello, Sean. Hello there, Howie. How are you today? Very well. So I wanted to have you uh, as a guest since we, we met, I guess, a month ago. Uh, you are the president of Safety Research and Strategies and also president of the board and directors and founder of the Safety Institute. And at first, it didn't occur to me that we were going to have a conversation that was going to be particularly relevant to what I talk about, which is kind of health and wellness. And then it occurred to me um, once we got to know each other a little bit that, you know, who cares um, – how many greens I eat each day if I, you know, die in a car crash. <laughs> like, like it, it, and, and safety is one of those things that I think is almost invisible in most people's consciousness. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you got into the field of sort of pr product and environmental safety? Sure. So, you know, I grew up um, with a fascination uh, with automobiles as a young man and uh, started reading trade journals when I was about 11. Uh was just fascinated by automobiles, particularly the freedom they offered. This is, of course, pre-Internet. And um, so, you know, automobiles were a big freedom for a lot of people. But more than that, I was also intrigued by the, the design, the engineering, the complexity of it all, and, and just got very fascinated by this industry that made these 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 machines and thought that I would get involved in that. Um, I really didn't have a lot of direction coming out of high school and uh, went to school for government and I have a philosophy minor. I worked my way through college in the tire business and when I got out of undergraduate, I went uh, to work in the tire business and was involved in doing things like uh, what are called warranty adjustment claims for um, a company that represented several of the big tire manufacturers. And in doing so, I started to see how problems found their way to consumers that ultimately caused a lot of harm and how they were covered up by manufacturers. And I found it really disturbing. And I also, I think, come at this from the standpoint of not just really liking automobiles, but I had a particular penchant for, uh, for, for really standing up on social justice issues. It's just been a theme through my life. And so I combined the two, and I decided after doing a lot of research that there's only one place I could work, and that was the Center for Auto Safety, which is a Ralph Nader-founded organization. And it had a storied history. Uh, it actually was founded with seed money that General Motors paid Ralph Nader, settling a lawsuit against them because they had killed him and they put prostitutes to try and entice him and so forth. There's, a, again, a wonderful story behind that. And this organization, the Center for Auto Safety, was founded uh, to to look at consumer safety issues around motor vehicles. I thought, wow, what a great combination of things because my interest in social justice, my interest in automobiles, now I can put them together and go to work. And, and that's what I did. And I started uh, um, when I was 22 years old doing that. Wow. So what was it like when you first started working this with the, the tire companies, which I guess was, you know, it wasn't like – you know, working for Maserati or Bugatti or Ford, but but closely allied industry, um, it's, and it sounds like an industry that you, that you maybe had some stars in your eyes about, and to see things that that maybe you regarded as unethical. What, what did what did that do for your you know, twenty something soul? 
you know, I think I realized that the tire business was a stepping stone for me, but I thought it was a stepping stone to a bigger, bigger picture. And I was also really fascinated with a very particular automobile company at that time was Saab. And Saab was an independent Swedish company that was headquartered in, in Orange, Connecticut at the time, which was you know, nearby. And uh, at, at one point or another, I had introduced myself to the president of the company and was invited to a, uh, some corporate functions and so forth. So I thought this would be maybe a segue in. And I liked Saab because they're a very innovative company. They made very few efficient cars that also had some unique characteristics. They're fast, they're efficient. Uh, they just used all of the resources in a very unique way. And so I thought maybe that would be an avenue. So the tires were stepping stone. Maybe I'd get into this. But, you know, once I started seeing this uh, kind of firsthand, like, again, warranty adjustment claims are a big part of how, you know, the tire companies are supposed to monitor safety in the, in the, in, in the safety of their products. And what I found was, wow, boy, um, I was being schooled on how to screw people and I thought of these claims. And, you know, I, w- I was smart enough to figure out that this wasn't a path that, that was, was sustainable uh, for, for me or, frankly, for the tire companies. Uh, but um, I felt that it really it really did reach in my soul, and I, and I spent literally six months, three nights a week. I would travel to the to the local library, and I, and what I did is I literally walked up and down the stacks, and I would uh, take I would just literally take anything off the shelf that caught my eye, no matter what it was about anything, and I would photocopy pages of things that interested me, and then then I would organize them in a notebook, and then I would start contacting people who I thought were interesting. And that ultimately led me down to learning about the Center for Auto Safety. Uh, and, and it wasn't even purposeful. It was just, you know, just that that's where, after six months of research, I narrowed down. This was the only place I could go because it was the only place I felt like I would be able to combine my two passions. And um, it was quite inspiring to, to really do that. And when I went down to the Center for Auto Safety, of course, I was told there are no jobs. And about three months later, I was hired. So uh, it was an interesting journey and one that, you know, you hear a lot about you kind of follow your path or your passion. And I certainly am a believer of that. And sometimes you don't always know what that is, but you've got these raw materials and um, finding those pieces you have to be thoughtful about putting it together and figuring out where to go with it. And, and, you know, the Center for Auto Safety was my first stop. So what, what did you work on when you first got there? And were there, were there things that, you know, looking back were sort of shocking and eye-opening to, for you that, you know, even today, uh, something 20-something years later, people should know about? Well, you know, I, I guess um, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. I mean, you know, I took a significant pay cut. I told my family um, I'm moving to Washington, D.C. Uh, I was given, you know, literally weeks to, to make the move, make the decision and get down there at, at a fraction of the salary I was uh, making. And um, I was not widely encouraged to do it. And uh, when I got there, I wasn't given a lot of instruction, and, and that was fine. I was basically told, I understand you like you know foreign cars and tires, and that's your assignment. You're going to work on those two things, and you're on the vehicle safety staff. And you know, here's our here's here's your desk, here's your files, um, and uh, you know, there's some very uh, bright people working here who um, are also involved in, in various projects, and you know, have at it. And I took it on my own to really just delve in. And I started using all of the different resources I developed working in the, uh, in, the, on the, in the business side of, of it, particularly on, the, on the, like the service side of it. 
and started identifying problems that I thought would be interesting to go after. And once I identified those problems, the first big one I identified was a problem with, uh, with what's called a heater core, which is a, basically a heat exchanger, like a mini radiator that sits behind the dash of your car. It's where the fluid from the engine circulates uh, when you turn on your heat and there's a blower behind it and it blows the warm air into the car. And what was happening uh, was a number of manufacturers were having problems where the end caps of the, on this little metal radiator were made out of a plastic, a nylon 6.6 material that was degrading and literally rupturing. And, of course, you know, anybody who knows anything about cars knows that you know, cooling systems are under a great deal of pressure. And that pressure is there in combination with ethylene glycol or antifreeze to, re to reduce the boiling point of the liquid so you can get superheated fluid passing through it, and it literally was spraying people's feet and their legs with the superheated fluid above the boiling point and causing horrible injuries as well as crashes. And that was my first kind of foray into um, looking at a defect issue, and I identified this problem in a number of different manufacturers, and I started putting together the pieces. You know, I'd studied enough what the Center for Auto Safety was about and what they were supposed to do that I just kind of went into, okay, let me, let me collect the information from, from the people in the, on the street, the consumers who are having the problem. Let me go find some experts who can help me with these different issues, materials experts, uh, you know, cooling system experts. Uh, let me go talk to the government investigators, talk to them about how we can move this thing through the system. Uh, let me go talk to the media about how we can get this issue out there and put some pressure on the manufacturers to resolve the problem. And that led me to uh, doing some defect petitions to the federal government, getting into open uh, federal investigations, and the air, uh, the date that uh, I, the, the the show um, I had uh, um, interviewed with, which was my first interview was on Good Morning America, uh, we um, got one of the manufacturers come to the table and recall the cars that day. Uh, so it was a pretty big, exciting kind of. Um, process and project for me, and that'll happen within within the first year, huh. and it was amazing. So, so as I listen to this, some part of me is going, well, you know, somebody has this experience of getting sprayed on their legs, and they go to the hospital, and then they 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 tell their mechanic, and their mechanic looks at it, and then you get four or five more reports like this, and of course the car company wants to avoid any sort of negative publicity, so they're immediately going to recall the cars and fix the problem. Why do they need, you know, auto safety institutes and, and like, why do they need this this kind of, uh, of policy pressure to fix something that they should have just fixed on their own? You know, it, it's a great question. I guess I guess I hadn't really even framed it in that way because I've been at it so long, Howie. But it's a, it's a really good way to ask the question: Why, you know, don't, don't companies automatically resolve problems when they have them? And you know, in an ideal world, the answer is yes. But in the real world, we see that oftentimes it takes external pressure and it takes the squeaky wheel to get something done. Um, there's also larger concerns when you're dealing with problems that literally can cost you know um, hundreds of millions of dollars if you're looking at the big picture. And and when you're dealing with a complex problem or, you know, something like a heater core, which is an expensive replacement part uh, affecting, you know, literally uh, hundreds of thousands of these vehicles out there, and you start multiplying the fix by $1,000, say, you know, now you're looking at some real money. And so there's a disincentive by the manufacturers to always resolve those problems. The cars are out of warranty. For the most part, you know, they're not going to get maybe the most 
injuries or fatalities and they'll pay the claims as necessary you know they kind of take that off the top what i learned i mean in short order was it does take a lot of pressure it takes a lot of of people standing up to say no this is what happened this is what's wrong and you also have to correlate it with others and dot the i's and cross the t's to move it past that line of a new uh, of, of nuisance problem to the manufacturer to real pr problem real cost problem um and it's got to outweigh the the cost of doing the recall which is not an easy feat in many of these instances so you know there's there's different sort of public narratives about safety and about you know that some of them refer to kind of the nanny state and the the you know the poster case for that was someone who got an outrageous settlement from you know spilling hot mcdonald's coffee on herself and then there's also the various movies in which there's the you know the the powerless injured person going up against the big evil megacorp. Is where where is where does the truth lie in your experience in the trenches around corporate responsibility and responsiveness for you know getting it wrong and hurting people? Well, you know, and it's funny you mentioned the hot coffee and McDonald's incident. That has been the most misunderstood issue, um, uh, and and it was used. Um, by uh, those who are in what's called the court reform movement, the folks who want to reduce corporate liability in the courtrooms um, by reducing the damages available to those who are injured, and they claimed that you know, in, in the case of the hot coffee, this this you know this poor woman, this you know clumsy woman, spilled coffee in her lap and burned herself, and therefore was was McDonald's fault. Well, this I'm not going to get into the whole rebuttal of it. There's a wonderful movie out there called Hot Coffee. It's a documentary on exactly what happened to Stella Liebeck, and it is stunning to see how the truth was twisted. My experience has been, um, you know we really don't see a lot of room for what is frequently styled as frivolous lawsuits. In our world, uh, it is so expensive to pursue litigation against a manufacturer of any product that it's an automatic filter. In fact, in many cases, we have folks coming to us complaining they can't get lawyers because their damages aren't even a million dollars. You know, there may be only 700000 or 500000 or $350,000, and they can't sue the manufacturer because no lawyer will take that on because there's not enough economic incentive to do it, and the cost of pursuing that litigation is so high today. So, you know, it does it does fall somewhere in between, and undoubtedly there are some cases that, that are, are not very uh, – they don't have a lot of merit. Um, however, in the world that we deal with in product safety and, and, and product failure, um, it's pretty thin today because, the, again, the cost of doing these kinds of things is so extraordinary. So one thing I wonder if we could get into a little bit is um, current modern-day automobile safety. Um, when we, we were chatting, you kind of opened my eyes and you know scared me about a few things. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, what you're working on now? And I don't know if you're uh, free to name names of companies. Uh, sure, yeah. I think, you know, I think one of the things that you know, we've seen – with not just automobiles, but a lot of products and just everything else in our world is we're moving towards a digital environment. Um, and that, you know, in, in, in the case of automobiles, that means moving away from mechanical controls to electronic controls. So we continue to see the more and more elimination of mechanical, traditional mechanical controls. So today's world, when you depress the gas pedal on a car, 
you're not actually opening the throttle in the gas pedal. You're actually sending a voltage signal that is sent to an engine control module that interprets that along with hundreds of other signals per second and makes a decision what to do with that throttle. And that's a very different experience or environment than when you had a throttle linkage you need to press the gas pedal and there literally was a metal linkage that went to a throttle that opened uh, that throttle and, and uh, the car accelerated. So we've come a, a long way and there are clearly advantages to the electronic systems that are in cars today. They run quieter, they run, uh, much, they run more efficiently, uh, they certainly pollute less. Um, there's a lot of safety benefits to things like electronic stability control, and yet we don't have controls over the electronic systems in these cars like one would expect. Uh, so you asked me at the beginning here, you know, uh, this kind of is there, you know, is there really a connection between, you know, what people think about safety and what you know may really be going on? And I think in short order, most consumers believe that it's on the road, it's got to be safe, it's well tested and vetted. But I think most folks are shocked to learn there really is no safety systems approach to the software that governs our cars today. And cars are governed literally by, in some cases, many as a hundred million lines of code which is now untestable. And to give you some comparison, uh, you know, things like the Boeing 777 are estimated to have about 7 to 8 million lines of code, when in fact maybe a Lexus has, you know, 100 million lines of code. So you've got, you know, a $50,000 product versus a hundreds of million dollar product, and one has a far less code. And there's a reason for that. The more you build the code, the, the greater increase, of course, the, the greater chances you're going to have errors in the code and problems and conflicts and so forth. But at the end of the day, we're getting too complicated for our own good. And what's happening is those problems are, are, are showing up in a variety of different ways in today's automobiles. So we're moving away from a traditional defect problem that can be identified with a broken part and fairly straightforward forensics to some very sophisticated, complicated problems that often can't be replicated even by the best experts. So, so you're saying that the, basically my car is being run by a bunch of computers mm -hmm. who, which are programmed with with – with code that sounds like it's like you know Microsoft and it's at its worst, just adding line upon line upon line instead of ever trying to simplify, streamline, rationalize, and 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 that's created a situation where we can't. There's nothing to look at and say, ah, there's the problem, right? Or, or even yeah. if there is one. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's absolutely the case that's happening, and I think you, you stated it well. It's just add-on. Plus, you know, let's, let's throw in a couple of other complexities here. We're dealing with a, a commodity market, huge cost pressures. We've got multiple suppliers. These component parts now have to interplay with other component parts, and, they may, and the suppliers of them may never even know about the other suppliers or how they're interconnecting. Um, so you, if you add all these kinds of things together, you know, of course you're going to have problems. So we... I'll give you a classic example of unintended consequences. Um, when we started to see the, the rollover crisis that was emerging in the 1980s into the 1990s, that was when light trucks were very popular. We moved from station wagons to SUVs, and, and it was a bigger move towards trucks in general. Those, those vehicles had an Achilles heel. They were narrow, and they were tall. And when you add people to them, they increase the, the center of gravity to the point where they could roll over literally just by making a, a steering maneuver on road. And 
at one point, it, it literally became a crisis of, of uh, on, in the motor vehicle world where rollover injuries were so disproportionately represented in the fatalities that clearly something had to happen. And so we did see a move towards changing the designs and making them lower, wider, and so forth. But one of the big uh, things that also happened was the addition of vehicle stability control, which is basically a system that uh, can apply one or more brakes independent of the driver and based on sensing systems in the vehicle, as well as reducing engine power to bring the vehicle in the line. So in other words, you can never get the the, uh, the rear end of the vehicle, you could never get the car to fishtail or vehicle to fishtail. If you went sideways in like an SUV, say something like a, a Ford Explorer from the from the 90s, that vehicle's going to roll over, especially at highway speeds. And and what these systems did is they kept the vehicle from ever getting sideways. That was a huge benefit, a huge, huge benefit, and ultimately became mandated technology. The big problem is, though, that that mandated technology doesn't have any safety check on it. So in other words, the software that drives it and in in the sensors that drive it, if something fails with it, the driver would not – you would not want to have the driver lose control of the vehicle because, say, a sensor failed – in the vehicle stability control system. But in fact, that's what's happening today. So we've seen recalls where vehicle manufacturers have sensor failures on a, on a vehicle stability control system, and literally all the brakes lock up when you're just driving down the road unexpectedly. And it takes the driver controls right away from you because they've never built in the software controls to ensure that that won't happen. And we don't have any regulation around that, and that's particularly troubling to me. Well, this... this brings to mind, I don't know if you're a Spider-Man fan, but the uh, the first movie where uh, Alfred Molina's character, Doc Ock, kind of burns out his human override chip of, <laughs> of the, you know, these uh, prosthetic, very powerful prosthetic limbs that he's controlling. And, you know, he, the, the, you know, the machinery, which is supposed to save us, actually can malfunction and cause us harm. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison. I think it's a good one. I mean, it's, I think that's really what we're looking at. And, you know, we refer to it as the, as functional safety. I mean, these, these systems don't have the functional safety controls. And again, we're dealing with commodity market level stuff. All of these kinds of designs emanated from avionics, where in avionics you used to have 7x redundancy. Today's motor vehicles, in many cases, don't even have a singular redundancy. They call it redundant, but when you talk to folks in the business who are really in decided, you know, who are actually in the design side of things, they'll look at these electronic systems and go, that's really not redundant. They're relying on the very same system here to build the redundancy. Therefore, it can't even be redundant. So, you know, we're in this kind of trough. While on one hand, yeah, cars are safer today than they've ever been. Uh, the chances, you know, we're reducing, we're certainly reducing crashes. And there's this whole mode in, in our world called Vision Zero towards, you know, zero fatalities in motor vehicle crashes. Um, and, you know, these things can be achievable, but I do feel like we're in this kind of awkward trough where, you know, the designs are not sophisticated enough. They haven't, they haven't vetted them out enough. We have too much code that's untestable. And at the end of the day, we're becoming the guinea pigs. And the good news for the industry out of this is that you can blame the driver for the problem. And that's really troubling. In fact, uh, there's a recent uh, defense bar conference uh, in which um, uh, the, uh, the lawyers who represent the automakers were lamenting the fact that, you know, as we move towards autonomous cars or the self-driving car like Google and so forth, that they're no longer going to be able to blame drivers for the crashes like they have been doing with, when these electronics fail. So, so you talk about uh, the pressures of a commodity industry. So it makes me wonder if I can buy a safe vehicle at a luxury level or are the, are the luxury features 
just you know better cup holders and light systems and and, and smart electronic seats you know what's yeah that? yeah well you know and, and again it, a lot of it really comes down to how well that company wants to do its test regimen and, and how they want to build in that safety and i think you know clearly there are companies that have historically done better job than others but i will say that the problems we're seeing across all boundaries um for uh, vehicle costs. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's the low end all the way up to the high end. Um, and we're seeing these problems. And, you know, of course, the pressure on the luxury car makers too is to make them, the, you know, to make them, uh, have more features, more of the bells and whistles. And when you start adding those things on, now you're looking at more complexity. I mean, when you have Mercedes crowing about having 30 million lines of code in its infotainment system alone, that's staggering. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling. And so that, that makes me very nervous. It makes me uncomfortable to see that all of these things are, and they're all interacting together. They're all interacting across what's, what's called the CAN bus. So there's these very sophisticated network designs that are pulsing information through a vehicle. And there's all kinds of ways that things can go wrong and do go wrong that are virtually impossible to document. You, you mean that theoretically, I push a button to change the, the serious channel on my radio, and it can affect the actual mechanical functioning of the car. Sure, can affect it, absolutely. In fact, you know, and, and of course, adding to the adding to this, let's throw in the fact that these systems aren't secure. So you're and literally in 2014, you've got cars running around with 2G technology that's completely unsecure. You've got the ability to to get into these systems uh, basically like you would a 1980s computer. So there's you know add that layer to it, and you've got a whole lot of folks out there talking about car hacking and and how to do that and what that looks like. And um, so there's a lot going on in our world uh, of motor vehicles, and you know again it mirrors a lot of other products. Whether you know it's the the Internet of Things as our homes become fully wired, um, as all of these kinds of things start to connect together, the ability to take down large systems or take take out like take these problems to a higher level. Uh, you know, are very real, and then individually as consumers, we're you know we're, we're purchasing products that are so sophisticated and so complicated, uh, they almost start to lose some of their functionality in my mind. So, aside from finding you know 1940s vehicles to buy on on Craigslist, so gi given this scenario, and you know this podcast is really about empowering people to take back their health, to take back their wellness, to take back uh, control over their lives from from interests that may not have their best interests at heart. What's a what's an ordinary person without gazillions of dollars to do to protect themselves and their family um, from from various types of uh, unsafe products and, and environments that are out there? You know, it's a it's an important question that I don't know that I can answer, and and I think you know looking at what we do here, uh, you know, we see the worst of the worst, so. When problems start creeping up, we're frequently the tip of the spear. We're starting to see those trends occur in ways that, you know, may uh, not be trending in a bigger way or it may not take notice even for some time in the larger data sets that people monitor around product safety and public health. So, you know, I guess it's, there's no easy answer to that. How do you protect yourself? 
uh, one of the things that I am, although I'm, I really enjoy technology, I love technology. I think I love what it does, and, and you know, this, the excitement of being able to do new things. I'm also extremely skeptical of adopting new technology in my world um, with any product, and I want to be sure of the long-term, you know, efficacy of what it is I've purchased. And that may mean that I'm not going to be on the cutting edge of a lot of things. Um, and so that makes it. Be you know maybe I'm not as uh, on the cutting edge with the latest devices and so forth, and I'm not in, as much as I may be interested in the functionality and some of the things they may do and how to apply those. I'm also very cautious about it. You know, I was very interested uh, when I was out at the Northeast Organic Farming Association uh, conference this summer, which is a wonderful organization for any of those who don't know about it. But listening to the folks from Farm Hack and how these you know young people are are putting together and pooling resources in, um, uh, you know, and, and basically having open source to being able to apply these new tools and these technologies to uh, adapting them to uh, farming and sustainability. That's interesting. That's really interesting to me. And I think that's kind of the segue into your discussion here. You know, that kind of application, that thoughtful application of technology is something I don't always see in the corporate world. I mean, it's always trying to sell us on the next thing, the next big gadget, the next, you know, do we really need this? What is it really doing for us and how do we apply it? But when you step back from the technology and look at, I've got a problem, how do I solve that problem? What tools are available to me? And if the technology is pretty sophisticated, sometimes you need help. You need that open source. You need people with access who can help teach you to do that. And so I'm very encouraged to see the applications of a lot of these technologies that filter on down and, and find their way to people who are interested in sustainability. Mm. So it sounds like, you know, to a large extent, the, the, the safety issue, which feels very individual and personal, is actually much more of a public health issue in that, you know, I can control to, if I have the means and the knowledge, I can control to a large extent what I feed my family. I can control the chemicals that I allow into my house via, you know, cleaning and, and uh, skin care products. But we're all sort of stuck with the public safety infrastructure and the effects might be differential based on your location or your resources, but there's there's no way to escape from them. And the thing we can do is to sort of embrace this um, appropriate technologies, take it slow and create a, a new way of thinking about problem solving that's maybe based more in in common good than in individual profit. Yeah, I think certainly, and I, I think that that's a nice way of putting it. I mean, you can really look at, you know, there's some, again, some terrific benefit to a lot of the sophisticated designs. I mean, whether it's whether it's the, you know, access to, to 3D printers to be able to, to design the parts you need to make the tools that are not made for the for the scale of farming you're in or the scale of, 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 of agriculture production you're in uh, to, you know, using um, the ability to take the software and reduce your, your uh fossil fuel consumption, if you have any, um, you know, to, to get a machine to a location to handle the problem versus being able to remotely operate something. Uh, you know, there's all different ways that, that, you know, applying these tools thoughtfully can really enhance 
uh, sustainability in this kind of move towards some of the permaculture types of concepts. Um, and there, I think we're still bridging some of that. And, uh, you know, watching um, the world that I operate in, and I'm, and I'm also, as you know, I have one foot into the, the sustainability and the, and the organic farming piece, which is of great interest to me because I want to control that environment for me and my family to the extent that I can. And um, having one foot in, the, in in two different, very different worlds, there is a bridge between them, and that is, you know, again, a thoughtful application of technology, not only from the standpoint of helping me with my my uh, agricultural in, adventures, but also how can I, you, you know, how can I use what's available, and how can I learn from what's been done on the commercial level to avoid problems down the road. Right. Well, it reminds me of something that one of my uh, permaculture teachers shared uh, a quote from one of his teachers, which is uh, after sh showing a group of people around his, his property, he, he said, I want you I, I have decided to uh, copyright all my mistakes and I've open sourced all my successes. So you're, all, you're only allowed to copy <laughs> the, the things that work. Well, that's that's an interesting concept, especially now, you know, and, and I just get to relate it to the to the world that we're in, you know, because there's a lot of there's a lot of fights going on over the proprietary nature of the electronic code and, and the systems approach that vehicle manufacturers have uh, where there's suspected failures and the lengths they go to to protect that from from ever getting into the public domain. And my thought is, why would anybody ever want to protect code that's causing like things like unintended acceleration and <laughs> anything is working. So it's kind of funny to hear you say that. Well, I'm wondering what you think about um, you know, Elon Musk's decision, to, uh, the CEO of Tesla, to, to open source all of the code used in, in that vehicle. Is that a, a publicity stunt or is that meaningful? Yeah, you know that's a good question. I, I, I'm I'm still on the fence on that, and I got to say I'm not so sure that it, it is uh, it is all that meaningful. And you know I also uh, have a healthy skepticism. I really want to like Tesla, and I like the fact they're taking on the traditional infrastructure and looking at how to how to move in a direction. But I also look at you know the way Musk has handled this business and the way you know he handles questions about his product and the product safety, uh, and and I wonder uh, you know how it's any different than um, any other large car corporation who has bullied uh, consumers. And I'm not quite sure I see much of a difference. Hmm. So um, I mean, we're coming to uh, the time when you said you had to close the interview and go back to work. But I'm curious, can you, can you name names at all about automobiles that you would or wouldn't recommend? Or is that something you'd rather not touch? I tend not to do that because, you know, at the end of the day, there is no one automobile that, you know, is the answer for folks. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the, today's vehicles are, you know, very sophisticated beyond the level I think they need to be. And that, that level of sophistication combined with the commodity level of the products involved um, are going to lend themselves to various failures. The only thing you can hope for is that the manufacturer has done a due diligence to ensure that the kinds of figures that are going to occur, because they will, are not going to take the controls away from you. And, you know, and also that if you do crash, uh, that the systems in place are designed to maximize uh, your, your safety. You know, the good news is, again, today's cars do crash much, much better. When you do crash, their ability to protect the occupants has enhanced greatly. Um, but, you know, we're seeing some interesting problems creep up as we move 
from the mechanical to the electronic side of, of problems. And that has me, you know, at, at a point where I wonder what I what I need, what I'm going to do when I have to buy cars too. And, and, you know, facing that scenario. And I, I just not sure that there's an answer to that, that lends itself to a recommendation at this point. Mm. Cause you know, I always thought that I was doing right by my family by going to the library and getting the consumer reports for the, you mm-hmm. know, the car issue and the safety things that they look at were, were basically crash tests, right? Correct. Rear, rear front side impact crash test and I thought if 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 I if they if they do that right then I'm buying a safe car. And and that is an important component to it and certainly one that everyone needs to pay attention to. You're looking at the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. You're looking at the National Highway Traffic Safety Mission. You look at this crash test performance. But, you know, recently, if you look at what happened in Congress, I mean, we have, you know, the, the hearings on General Motors. I mean, you know, it's a, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which, which uh, does the, the star ratings for cars. I mean, look at how many cars get four and five star ratings. You can't differentiate anymore because the tests need to be up. But they haven't. So, you know, yeah, you can, you, you always want to go for the, the, the higher rated for tests, but also keeping in mind that there's a lot of other factors in safety. You, you're build, if you're building to a test, then, you know, manufa- manufacturers that build to a test only are, you know, what happens when you get a little bit outside of that test? Does the car still protect you? So there's other aspects to these things that are far more complicated than, than the average consumer can ever figure out on their own. And, you know, from my vantage point, we're not only looking at, you know, the crash test, but we, we see the real world performance when that car isn't hitting a wall head on or at an offset. We're seeing the oblique crashes. We're seeing, you know, the, the multiple crashes. We're seeing things like how do the door latches hold up in a side uh, impact with a pole? At, at a position where it's not mirroring the crash test. You know, those are the things that, that don't show up. And how do you deal with that as a, as a consumer? And unfortunately, there's no answer to that. There really isn't. And so you, you just, you're kind of flying blind in many respects. Uh, you do the best you can with the available data. And one has to hope that the manufacturers that are building these products are responsible enough to respond to problems quickly and, and you know, mitigate any problems and that their designs are robust on the front end to prevent it. Unfortunately, um, I, I see the worst of it, and I'm not always convinced that, that those are the kinds of things that are driving uh, the types of vehicles we have today. Hmm. So one, one last question. I, promise, and I, th- I think we need to have a permaculture discussion another time to give it, to give it its due. Um, but so if I'm, if I'm concerned about a public health issue like climate change, I can <laughs> donate to organizations, I can march, I can write to my representatives. What do I do if I'm an individual concerned about product safety, specifically automotive highway safety? What are, what are some levers available to me as a, a citizen? You know, I guess if you're, if you're having a problem, certainly there's, there's mechanisms that are like the, there's places to report these problems, and I would encourage you know, all consumers to report their problems to all of the appropriate state, federal agencies, uh, to the nonprofit organizations. Make sure that information is known in the public domain. It just needs to get out there. The good news is in today's world of big data, there are people studying these kinds of things. Uh, you know, our group included in our nonprofit, I mean, we're doing all kinds of analytics, looking at the types of things that are available in the public and getting your information into the public about your experience and the things that are happening are really important places, you know, for, for researchers to go to, to get that. So that, from that standpoint, that's just really important. If you're interested in the bigger picture of how do we improve ourselves from a policy standpoint, you know, paying attention to the details of, of, the, of these kinds of things, you know, are time consuming. Um, you know, we should be looking at the bigger picture 
and and I think there are a lot of people can, looking at how do we eliminate a lot of these problems through you know technology. And there is a you know the autonomous car is one way that that folks are thinking we're going to eliminate a lot of a lot of driver error, which is a root of of a lot of crashes. Uh, but in getting us there, you know, how do we keep ourselves safe? So, you know, there's no easy answer to your question. It's a very good one. It's complicated. As someone who's interested in the kind of big picture of how do we use technology and how do we prevent technology from introducing new problems, you know, that that's something we're always trying to figure out how to do too. I, mean, I think the the reason why we started the Safety Institute, for example, uh, that our 501c3 nonprofit, is we're really interested in this intersection of technology and injury prevention. So the good news is technology has offers great benefit to us to look at how we can re- eliminate hazards and and prevent injuries. But on the same, uh, when you flip that over. We're also finding that technology introduces new ways to kill and injure people. We need to be diligent about examining the technologies and trying to eliminate before those technologies are introduced. And if they are introduced with problems, you know, using your analytic tools, you want to be able to eliminate them quickly and, and get them redesigned. All right, one one last question. I promise this is the last one. <laughs> you formed a nonprofit to deal with the issue. Is, do you see... Um, any way in a capitalist society that these problems can be addressed with market solutions, or is it always going to have to be governmental, nonprofit, some other force other than the market to solve the the, the problems of, uh, of of you know safety and injury sure. prevention? Well, you know, it's funny because my my primary research organization, Safety Research and Strategies, we have been doing advocacy work with our findings for many years and I resisted setting up a nonprofit and in part because of that very idea that you know we are a market solution to, to problems if we can help make it more expensive for corporations to cause death and injury to their customers uh, then uh, than it is to fix those problems we're on the right side of things and that's been a big that's been a model of mine for the last 20 plus years is to try and affect that equation, uh, we do see that there's a role for nonprofits. There is a role for the non-government organizations that are nonprofit as well that allows you to get other monies and that you can't get in, say, a for-profit corporation uh, to do those kinds of things. Um, so there's a place for all of it. I think all of these kinds of organizations have to play roles in keeping us, uh, keeping us um, you know, on the right side of, of issues. Well, Sean Kane, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's uh, you, You've opened my eyes to a lot of issues and problems I didn't know exist, but you also opened my eyes to the fact that there are good people like you out there on the front lines uh, working to, to keep us safe and to make the world a safer place for us and our families and our neighborhoods. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go on the web? Uh, they can go to safetyresearch.net or to thesafetyinstitute.org. Those are our, our websites for our respective organizations. Uh, and you'll see we've got quite a library of, of publications and things that we've done research on. We put a lot of our reports into the public domain as well. So we try and do our best to, to keep the, the public educated on these rather complicated problems we run into. All right. So... Check those out. And, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time with us, and be well. Thanks, Howie. It's a pleasure being on your show. Thank you. Take care. Good day.